Hey, good morning, everybody. My name's Chad, uh, one of the pastors here. I will be your virtual pastor for the day. Um, glad to be with you, even though I can't see you, um, but I know you're there. At least I think you are. Or maybe this is the moment you actually went to the kitchen to get something to eat. Um, but so good to be together. Uh, also frustrating not to be really together. Um, the cool thing about the Lord and about church is church has been opened since a tomb was discovered empty. Uh, it hasn't closed since. And so church is not a building. I know sometimes we need reminding of that. Uh, we need to gather and we look forward to that, but it's, it's not the end all be all. We have uh, the living God living in our hearts and the body of Christ is uh, deployed at the moment. And so we're gonna keep trusting the Lord uh, for what he's gonna do and how he's gonna move us out of this. Um, I know there's wisdom that he will give. Um, many of you are trying to give lots of wisdom too, and that's okay. I understand there's lots of voices, lots of voices uh, trying to say, hey, this is what we should do. We should do it now. Um, it's kind of weird to be stuck in the middle of all that, but we're trusting the Lord, um, good people listening and staying in contact with our district. Uh, also just trying to listen to government officials and, you know, all that kind of stuff in good time. Uh, in the meantime, though, um, happy Memorial Day weekend. Uh, it's one of those holidays that's an easy one to uh, connect to the great sacrifice that Jesus has done for us, uh, laying down his life for us. And we remember those who have laid their lives down for this country so that you and I can worship today and nobody's knocking on our door saying, hey, are you talking about Jesus? If you are, I'm taking you to jail. Um, that's not happening. We have the freedom to worship as we, uh, according to the dictates of our own conscience is how it, it was written. And so I'm um, very thankful for that. Very thankful for those who have served and given their life for this country. We've had to get creative in the way we do this. Uh, and so it was a real joy this past Friday to do a virtual uh, child dedication. And uh, we got a couple of pictures here, um, but this is Gabe um, Richards and his family, uh, his parents, Matthew and Casey, and some wonderful extended family that I got to meet. And we did a child dedication over Zoom on Friday. It was interesting, but it was also really sweet. And, and just one of those things to say, Lord, we know you're still working, you're still moving. And so uh, we just send congratulations to that family. Really amazing thing to say, hey, here is our boy, Lord. We want him to know you. We want him to serve you. We want to bring him up in this house for him to fall in love with the living God. So it's a good thing. So I want to pray for us. Uh, if you feel comfortable, open your hands, uh, close your eyes. Let's just ask the Lord to meet us as we spend some time together. Lord, thank you for the amazing sacrifice uh, that you um, laid down your life for us. And uh, Lord, that is the ultimate memorial. Uh, we remember you today. And Lord, we're also thankful for uh, the country we live in and the freedom to worship and for those who've given their life uh, for the freedoms that we enjoy today. Uh, Lord, thank you for this season. Uh, Lord, I, sometimes I'm forcing myself to say that because it's hard, but we trust you. We thank you, God, that we have a future and a hope we can look to in you. Uh, pray, God, as we spend some time in your word, would you minister to us? In Jesus' name, amen. So a future and a hope. Last week, we decided we're done with this quarantine thing and we want to be out. And so we want to begin looking to what's it going to be like uh, when we're out of this, both here in um, our current life, but also what's it going to be like when we're out of this, when we're actually with Jesus? What does that hope and future look like 
when you're waiting around and wondering what the future holds and you have restlessness in your heart that always kind of seems to be lurking and wanting to make you anxious and cause you to worry, it's really important to listen to one voice that's true and one voice that you know will not lie to you. We have a, a phrase we use around here, which I stole from another pastor, but when we spend time every day as individuals in God's word, we call it chair time. And so if you came to my house in the morning, uh, you would see I've got a chair, it's in the same spot. And I sit there every morning and I get my coffee and I open my Bible. I use a devotional uh, called the Bible in one year. And I park my caboose in a chair for chair time with Jesus. And I listen to him. And it's not just about reading the Bible. It's about a conversation. It's about hearing his voice through his word, but it's also learning to process this world. It's learning to process the anxieties that I am feeling, the lies that I am hearing, and how to talk to him, how to pray, how to spend time with him. Do you know there's a whole book in the Bible, uh, Daniel read one of them for us this morning, that's dedicated to people like you and like me who are saying, Lord, here is all this stuff. I need to speak to you. I need you to tell me what's true again. That's really what it's about. Sitting in that chair is about saying, God, tell me again what's true. Remind me that you love me. Give me hope today in this moment. The Psalms are a beautiful library for that. We're going to be in Psalms 90 today. Uh, it's actually a, a psalm that we were praying for you this past week. Our board uh, sat together and we prayed over this psalm for you, for your situation. Um, and just, I felt like as we were praying it, God was just tapping on my heart saying, you need to spend some more time in this. It's just a good place to grab onto because the author, guess what? He felt some of the same stuff that you're feeling. He experienced difficult things just like you. And he wrote this prayer down and he said, here, I'm just gonna pour out my heart. So let me read the first few verses, Psalms 90. Let's read first one. Lord, you've been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And what about us? It says, you return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight, you may have heard this verse before, are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They're like a dream just like grass that's renewed in the morning. In the morning, it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening, it fades and withers. Now you're supposed to read the scripture, but you're also supposed to read in between the lines and to listen. Remember that conversation, you're sitting in that chair, you're saying, God, speak to me. And so as I read between the lines of this Psalm, and as it reads me, it's also the chair time, what that's for, for God's word to read you, I can tell that the person who wrote this had really been through some tough stuff just with the way they're starting. We're going to see it even in the following verses as well. But I can tell just with the, the theme that they're going after, 
about God being an eternal dwelling place and about life just being dust and returning quickly, I can tell they've been through some serious stuff. And I think they're starting with, I need to hear some truth and maybe I need to hear some hard truth from your word, God. Lord, you've been our dwelling place. I love how the New Living Translation uh, translate this. It says, Lord, through all generations, you have been our home. It was years ago, I was uh, home from college, still young. And uh, just to give you some time frame reference, I had a Walkman and it was not a CD Walkman. It was a cassette Walkman. Um, had it hooked onto my belt, you know, and I was mowing the lawn. We have a huge backyard at my dad's house. And I got a hold of a sermon from a pastor on heaven. And I was real curious. I want to know, like, what is there to know about heaven? What is there to know about our future? What hope is there to grab onto? And it's interesting because I was expecting streets of gold, mansions. You know, there's cool, fun songs. It's a big, big house with lots and lots of rooms, big, big yard. We can play football, big table, lots of food. And there are things in the Bible about that. And I don't believe for a second that we're going to be like oh, floating around. And you no, know, that's not what scripture describes. There are words about a place to live and worship and feasting together and endless days where we're never bored. But what was interesting was that the guy that was speaking moved away from all that stuff real fast. And I'm mowing the grass and sometimes mowing the grass is a angry time for me. <laughs> I'll just be honest. Like it's just one of those moments where I'm like working through all my stuff. It's almost like my Psalm writing moment in my heart where I'm just like mowing the grass. And he said this, he said, heaven isn't as much about all those amazing things. It's, it's included. He said, but heaven is this. Heaven is that you will have a home. In God, he will be your home. Can you say the same of your own life? Lord, you've been my dwelling place, my home through all generations. Is it true of you? Why is it that most of the world lives as if this isn't true? Because the psalmist seems to be saying, our collective human race, you have been our home. You know, around here, our, our vision statement is every generation made alive in Jesus. If, if there's a subtext to that, it's this, to tell everybody your home is to be found in Jesus Christ. You may not know it yet, but he's your home. It's kind of what the psalmist is saying. What would it be like if we lived that way right now with the stuff that's going on? What difference would it make for how we view everything that's happening around us right now? What kind of hope would it lay in our hearts for our future? I've lived in South Carolina, Tennessee, Illinois, Texas, North Carolina, back to Tennessee, and now Minnesota. But none of them are really my home. That's what the psalmist is saying. Chad, your real home is me. It's in Christ, in God. No matter where I am, no matter what circumstances I may be going through, the reality that God is my home, even if I try to ignore it. One of the other psalmists in Psalm 139 talks about when he tried to ignore it. He says, where can I go from your spirit? I can't get away from you. If I go to the highest heights, you're there. 
If I go to the deepest depths, even down to hell, well, there you are again. I cannot get away from you. Why? Because he is your home, even if you don't realize it yet. Now he starts to anchor us in some big, huge ideas about God. Before the mountains were born or ever you had formed the earth, to those who don't think God was involved in creation intimately, it's all over the Bible. It's all over the Bible. Intimate, constructing, creating, the artist at work. But that's not his point here. He almost assumes that truth. He says, before all that happened, before you formed the earth and the world, almost like it's just a nice color drawing that you just put on the fridge in heaven somewhere, says from everlasting, you are God. There's never been a time when God wasn't. He is eternally self-existent. Wrap your noggin around that one. It's difficult. It's supposed to be a little difficult. It's hard. And yet it's exactly what the psalmist is asking you and me to do. God exists in the eternal now. It's an interesting phrase, the eternal now. So for God, time doesn't pass. There isn't anything that has, hasn't happened for him. What we understand as past, present, and future just is for God. He's not waiting around going, man, I wonder what 2021 is going to bring. That's going to be a doozy. I better be ready with all my tricks and toys in heaven. No, it just is. It is before him. He created it. It's a part of his creation. So he's not waiting for it to happen or waiting to see what's going to happen. It's just God. I have been uh, jumping into a couple of new books here during quarantine. And one of them is an old one that I'd forgotten about. Uh, one of my favorite authors, Michael Crichton, just kind of a thriller writer. But he wrote this book called Timeline. He's the same guy that wrote Jurassic Park. Um, Timeline, it's uh, just this amazing setting. They're on an archaeological dig in France uh, in you know late 90s. And they dig down to this part of uh, the dig that is somewhere that has not been visible. It's not been opened since the 1400s. They dig down and they find all this stuff that they expect to find. And then all of a sudden, out of the corner of their eye, this guy sees this shiny object. And he looks down and he pulls out a pair of prescription lenses that are carbon dated to the 1400s, but were made now. I love time travel books. <laughs> it's so fun to think about. What would that be like to go back? What would it be like to go into the future, to go to these amazing events that happened, to see what this was like or what this was like? For God, it just all is. It's in front of him all the time. And I'll say, as I think about him existing eternally, so you're saying nobody created God? No, he just always was and is and will forever be. Yes. Hard to think about, but I also find that it's kind of like stepping up to the Atlantic Ocean or the Pacific. And when you walk up to the edge of the water and you, full, you feel that tug, the undertow and the power of the waves, and you put your feet in a little bit. And if you wait in a little more, you can just, wow, this is powerful. God's self-existence for us is like wading into the ocean and trying to understand all of it at once. And even then it would just be scratching the surface of who he is. 
one of the attributes of God, there are two kinds that we, when we study the attributes of God, the communicable attributes of God, which just means those are things that we can share with him, like justice, love, holiness. Like we're not at all perfect or get to those things, but we can see glimpses of that in us. Then there are these things called the incommunicable attributes, meaning nobody gets to have these except for him. The fact that he's all-knowing, that he's all-powerful, that he's everywhere, those omni-words, omnipresent, omniscient, omnipower, you know, like those, that's who he is. We don't get to share those things. So the one highlighted in this Psalm, when he says that God has forever existed, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God, is a fancy highfalutin term called the aseity or aseity of God. Now I got to tell you, when I first heard that, I'm like, oh brother, highbrow theological terms. I know those people. I know those people. I know how they make me feel too. I know what it's like to sit in a seminary classroom and raise my hand to ask a question and asking the question and seeing the room full of jerks go, oh, can't believe you didn't know that. Now we're giving them a pass because I think they were uh, stuck in their pride and just not getting a lot of things. But I know what that's like to sit there and think, well, this isn't for me. My driveway doesn't go all the way to the street enough to get these kinds of understanding on God's self-existence and his aseity, that he is of himself. No one has ever created him. But here's the amazing thing about Jesus. He wants you to think about this. He doesn't want you to say the aseity of God. What is that? Well, I don't even know if I can get my head around that. He says, no, come close. Step up to the edge of the ocean. You want to talk about your future? Put your toes in. Feel the pull and the power of who I am. That there's nothing that exists that I don't know. There's nothing that can happen that isn't before me right now. And in Christ Jesus, though I have been made to feel like I don't belong at times, in Christ, he says, boldly approach the throne of grace. That's something else I learned in my chair time. You sit there in the book of Hebrews and he says, hey, come on, experience the great and awesome power, the self-existent God. Now, as a pastor, I don't want you to ever hear a word like that, a big word, a saity, and say, ugh, I don't know. That just seems too much. No, I want you to know that Jesus wants you to understand who he is, wants you to feel the weight of that. The psalmist wants you to feel the weight of that, wants you to know if there's a truth you could swim in, you could wade in, you could float in. The existence of God that he has always been is a good one to start. It's a good place to anchor your soul. And he's not withholding anything from you. You have every right to step into his presence and to talk about these things and to understand them. Now, why is it important that a thousand years is like a day to God and that it's like a dream that's just swept away? This isn't so we can have proof to say, well, this is why this happened in this many days. And here's, let's see this proof. I think he's just trying to get you to say, look at how amazing he is. It's like God in the year 1020, okay? Does anybody know what was happening in the year 1020? I tried to look it up on Google. And there's like all this, it's like, who is that? I don't know who that is. That doesn't have anything related remotely to me. It's as if God would say, 1020? Oh yeah, you mean like Saturday? That's how he sees. It's like it was yesterday. He's like, that's nothing. So if a thousand years are but a breath to him, 
What's the brief time you and I have on earth? What about a few months in the year 2020? And the psalmist isn't making light of people when he says that God just says, return to dust. Like he's this meanie. He's trying to give perspective and depth to tell you, anchor yourself in who God is. All of life is recognizing that, guess what? That's your home. The question isn't so much if he is your home. He is. He always has been. But are you home? Are you living in that home? Or has sin caused you to pack your bags and you're on the run? So how do we get home? If our home is in God and he lives in the eternal now, how can we get there? Let's keep looking. Verse seven, we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath, we are dismayed. You've set our iniquities before you, our secret sins. They're just right there in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength, maybe we get 80. Yet their span is but toil and tribal trouble. They're soon gone and we're gone. We fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Of all the things to talk about, to anchor yourself in, to be comforted by, the author here goes straight to something that at first glance makes us uncomfortable. God's anger, God's wrath. He talks about it a lot in there. You went from God's eternal existence to his anger and wrath. How about his love? Can we go there? That'd make me feel better. The psalmist, and we got to remember that the psalmist is directed by God, inspired, written by the very hands and voice of God through the psalmist, is saying, no, 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 you need to, you need to talk about God's anger and wrath. If you look closely, you remember, and he is reminding us why we need God's anger and wrath. You may say, I don't need that. I don't need God's anger and wrath. Why? Why would you say I need it? Isn't, it's not enough to know that God is our, just our, is our home. We have to recognize that our ability to be in his presence has been severed, broken, irretrievably altered apart from some outside help. And this help can come from somebody else that suffers the same way we do. A human being can't do it. At least not a human being like us. They cannot restore and reconnect what has been severed. If God has a street that he lives on, if he has a neighborhood that he lives on just metaphorically, you're not even going to make it into the neighborhood trying to restore things. You cannot come close. We see this in other parts of the scripture, Isaiah and Isaiah chapter six. And if there's a guy who was a good guy and had a great life in God, who I would say, let's stack Chad next to Isaiah. Isaiah is a giant. I'm way down here. I don't even know. I can't even do anything close to what Isaiah did. He's a prophet. He was an amazing man of God. But Isaiah, when he stepped into God's presence, Isaiah chapter six, he says, in the year that King Uzziah died, meaning it's a now thing, it's a real event in history. He says, I saw the Lord. And what was the result of that? Oh, it was just warm and fuzzy and just so bright and beautiful. Is that what he said? No, he said, I am ruined. I'm gonna die because I'm in his presence. This amazing thing that happens, an angel comes and takes a coal from the altar, puts it on his lips and says, your sin has been atoned for. You can be here now. But other than that, 
if we don't have somebody doing something for us, we cannot stand in his presence. Well, why all the fuss? If he's God, can't he just bend the rules a little bit and allow people who are almost good enough? And you may also be thinking, I get it. This is, this is the God of the Old Testament, isn't it? The wrathful one, not the kind one. You know, Jesus, God 2.0. I, yeah, I, I upgraded. I upgraded to the New Testament God. I, pff, not that old one. Newsflash. The God that Isaiah thought would kill him and the God who walked around in sandals in first century Galilee, one and the same. One and the same. And he was the one who said one and the same. Because when they asked him, who are you at all these I am statements? Oh my goodness. Same I am that was spoken of in the Old Testament. He's always been perfect. He's always been holy. He's always been unable to tolerate sin in his presence. He's always responded in righteous wrath and anger to that sin. Well, can he just overlook it a little bit? Look the other way, be a little more lenient. Let's flip the question back to us. Do we really want a God who decides that dark is actually light today? Do we really want a God who says, yeah, sin is just preference and lifestyle choices. Somebody else may not agree with you, but that's okay. No big deal. We need him in his holiness, his purity, his righteousness, his love. And here's the key thing that cannot be changed. Do you want a fickle God who has a short fuse, can get all riled up, fly off the handle? Or do you want one that is steadfast in his love and holiness? Now, before you answer, just think about it. Realize this, the first option I presented isn't God. A God that changes, a God that's unpredictable, a God that changes the rules, it's not God. The very definition of who he is, self-existent for all these years, needing to respond to sin with wrath and anger is one who does not change. Now we think, I, I want that other, I want the other kind of God though. I want the, the more lenient one. And you know, sure, it may bring some measure of comfort and relief, at least temporarily, allowing us to continue in a lifestyle of sin because it feels right and how could God be against this? But you don't want that God. Here's why. That God's not a sure thing. That God is not a sure thing. For that God who can change his love is not a sure thing. His holiness is, yeah, maybe sometimes. His righteous rule and reign is a B plus, but never a straight A. Who wants to roll the dice with that kind of God? You live 70 or 80 years wondering, is he going to be faithful or not? Is he going to love me? Maybe he's a B plus. It's pretty good average. Who wants that kind of God? I don't. I don't. I want one who says dark is dark and light is light, who understands sin and who deals with it the way he should. So we've established he's our home. We're not at home because of sin. And the only way God can deal with sin is through his righteous wrath and holiness. He can't just say, no big deal. No, it's all laid out before him. The psalmist here, you set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. 
it's not hard to understand why we might all be a little embarrassed if everybody could see our secret sins, our thoughts. How many thoughts a day do you have to confess and speak out loud or in a prayer to the Lord that you hope nobody ever hears? And yet it says right here, it's laid out before him. He sees all of it, even the sins you haven't committed yet. So the psalmist then puts a question and says, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Now that fear is not like a, but it's worship in awe. It's another way to say this is who's thinking about this stuff? Who's thinking about the fact that he's eternal and he exists and he's all love and truth and light and righteousness. And yet we can't be in his presence. Who's thinking about this stuff? Who is taking the time to understand this? You want to know how to fix your heart and hope in a future? Think about this stuff. Think about it. We realize when we think about it, that our life that is under God's wrath, Romans 1 says it, children of wrath, apart from Christ, we're under his wrath, is a waste. That's kind of what he's saying. It's just emptiness. 70, 80 years, and then it's it. You're gone. Apart from a fix, apart from God doing something, it's a waste. And what is the path toward that fix? And he gives it to you right there. He says, so teach me, Lord, teach me to number my days. And that doesn't mean get the most out of life. You've only got 70 or 80 years. Live it up. It's not what he's saying. Teach me to number my days so that I may get a heart of wisdom. What's a heart of wisdom? How will it help us? How can it get me out from underneath the wrath of God, which he is right to have? If I really think about this stuff, he's right to have it. How can my life be filled with hope? How can I be certain of my future? Let's read the last few verses. Return, Lord. Come back. How long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad. For as many days as you've afflicted us and for as many years as we've seen evil, let your work be shown to your servants, your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. Establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. So the heart of wisdom, teach me the number of my days so that I can have a heart of wisdom, prays this, longs for one thing. Heart of wisdom longs for one thing, the presence of God. Come back, Lord, return. Don't let me be without your presence. I'm nothing without you. Have mercy on me. How long, oh Lord? Nobody needs to convince this guy who wrote it that being with God is his highest and only goal. Why is it so hard for us? Why does it take so much convincing for us? He wants the very thing that can kill him. To be in the presence of God can kill him. And he's not just asking for a better perspective on the brevity of life. He's got that. He knows that it all fizzles without having some sort of fix. Yet he wants something more. He wants to be satisfied with his steadfast love. I want to be satisfied with you, God. Why do you think God has designed you to seek satisfaction, but never able to quite get it? Why does it end that the thing we think we really want, you still find yourself empty at the end of it? 
Why do all the people who have millions of dollars tell us it's not the answer? And we all say, I want to make that call. (laughs) Why does God build that in? So that you'd get to this place and you would say, satisfy me with your steadfast love that does not change. It's not a B plus love. It's a straight A love. It's always been the same way. So one thing, just as we kind of finish this, if you looked at the beginning, if you have a Bible that kind of says who the author was, and again, the author is always the person who's the pen and the mouthpiece for God, but it's Moses. Moses wrote this Psalm. So who was Moses? Think about Moses' life for a second. Miraculously saved, almost killed at the beginning of his life, put into Pharaoh's court. Somebody who thought he was God was to be regarded as immortal and divine. Meanwhile, the people of God, thousands upon thousands in bondage, slavery, making bricks. You know the story. A reluctant leader called by the very God who we know is the great I am. Moses speaks to that God face to face. He deals with criticism from people. Some people want him as leader. Other people hate him. God sends him into a no-win situation, telling him to ask Pharaoh to let people go, knowing that he would harden Pharaoh's heart and not let them go. The plagues, Pharaoh lets them go only to chase them down with a murderous army. The crossing of the Red Sea, the wall of water, the manna in the desert, water from the rock, the finger of God writing on the tablets on Mount Sinai, and so on and so on. I would say... He's been through a lot, hasn't he? Yes. He's been through some stuff in his life. But we would also say this. God's arranged the events of his life to get him to this point of saying, come back. I want to be satisfied only in your love, Lord. And then I love this prayer at the end, and it's one that I pray for my own kids. And I think it's one that we should pray, but there's kind of a little hidden meaning inside of it. Let your children, let our children see your work, Lord. Let our children see your work. So here's a question. What is God's greatest work? What is the greatest work he has ever accomplished? Is it not the eternal one stepping into the now of our lives? squeezing his eternal being into human skin, living the perfect life, dying the death we all deserve, taking the very wrath that we deserved, conquering death, resurrected, and inviting us to be satisfied with him. That's his greatest work. Moses is prophesying about Jesus. He's speaking of the coming king, the one who will satisfy. And what do we get if we accept it? We get a robe of righteousness. You come home, you get the clothes of being home. Jesus' perfect record put over your life, transferred to your spiritual account to invite you to be forever satisfied in him. That's our future. That's our hope. Last week, I mentioned to you that Ravi Zacharias, a famous apologist, somebody who's been serving the Lord for a long time, was uh, close to death. And it was the next day, Monday, that he now is face-to-face with Jesus. Face-to-face, he is home. He's home. If you know his story, when he was 17 years old, he tried to kill himself and almost succeeded. He was in the hospital and a believer brought a Bible in, gave it to his mom and said to Ravi, read John 14, 19. She read in this verse and the last part of it kind of became his lifelong uh, pursuit And it's Jesus speaking. And Jesus says this, because I live, 
you also will live. And for the next, however, 50 something years, he served the Lord and he's home. Right now he's perfect because of Jesus, what had satisfied him and sustained him in this life. Jesus Christ every day is now his hope and future, his eternity face to face. Let's pray together. Lord, I um, just pray God for anyone that's listening right now who is uh, tired of wondering if you really love them, tired of carrying around their sin, tired of uh, just barely making it. God, that you would prompt them right now just to say to you, Lord, I give you my sin. I give you my heart. I give you my life. I believe in your great work, your life that you live for me, your perfect life that allows me to be in your presence, your death on the cross, your resurrection, your ascension and your eventual return. Lord, I believe in you. I give up my life for you. Lord, I wanna live in my home with you. I'm tired of running. I'm tired of being away from you. So I turn to you now. Lord, we thank you that you will never reject us, Lord, if we are turning to you. With a broken and contrite heart, a humble spirit, Lord, you welcome with open arms. And God, I pray that uh, you'd continue to stir, Lord, as we spend a little more time here in worship, continue to minister to hearts, Lord. Allow us to uh, have our own psalms rise up, Lord, to say that we need you, that we love you, that we long for you, Lord. Fix our hearts, anchor us to the risen Christ, to the one who is our home. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Hey, if you uh, decided in that moment, in that prayer, to finally give in, to finally give your heart to Jesus, to give up your sin, uh, would you let us know? Uh, you can email me if you want, chad at pvwinona. You can also, if you're brave enough right there on Facebook, put it in the comments, say, hey, I just did it. Uh, it's a bold step. It's a way to give a witness for the Lord. Um, but you can also just email us. We would love to support you and come around you. Uh, and if you did, well done. It's, it's the one decision you have to make in this life, which is to finally give up and give your heart to Jesus. Uh, well, let's spend some time in worship together.